So if you have your Bibles, turn in them with me to Acts chapter 2. You knew I was going there, right? Acts chapter 2. And we have to read this portion of Scripture because it's, it's just the perfect thing uh, for today. And it is for today, and I know that there are, are those that are not well and they're watching at home, or those are just staying away, they're watching at home. And that's fine. But Pentecost doesn't care where you are. The Holy Spirit doesn't care where you are. All that matters is that we understand that He is everywhere and that He is with you. So Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, Pentecost is really important as a Jewish feast. The first, there's three Jewish feasts. There's the Feast of Passover, there's the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And Passover was a fulfillment of the day uh, on that Jesus really gave his life. He was the bloodless uh, he was the, the he was the spotless, not bloodless, spotless Lamb of God. That blood was shed for our sins and the sins of all people. That's Jesus. And what's so interesting about it is that that very day at nine o'clock they were cutting the lamb's throat. Well, that very time at nine o'clock they were nailing Jesus to the cross. Do you realize that at three o'clock they would take the lamb out on Passover and prepare it and put it in the oven? And at three o'clock they took Jesus's body down off of the cross, completely fulfilled Passover, right? Another wonderful thing about Passover was that they would, they would bake the bread and the father would go into the house and he would hide the bread somewhere in the house. And then the morning after the Sabbath, he would uh, bring the bread out of where it was hiding and he would wave it around to show it off as part of their, um, you know, the, the celebration of the Passover. And Jesus by the Father, was taken out of the tomb by miraculous power, raised from the grave, hallelujah, on, on the first day of the week. So there's a lot of connection with Jesus and Passover, right? I think, I think we get that. So Jesus came out of the tomb, was in a new life. One of, Feast of Tabernacles is one of three feasts. It has three feasts included in it, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles hasn't been fulfilled yet, the, the, but it will, will, will be one day because the trumpet's going to sound, because they would sound the trumpet. And so we can receive Passover, right? Because we have received Christ. We understand that He has shed His blood for us. So yes, we can receive because of the resurrection of Christ. And we can accept the fact that one day the trumpet will sound, so the Feast of Trumpets, the, that we can understand that we will be forever with the Lord. Praise God for that. So, so let me ask you, can you experience, if you experience those things and you're going to experience them, can you experience Pentecost as well? Pentecost is just a word, pente, the word 50. It's a word that means 50. There were seven weeks of harvest, and the day after the seventh week was the 50th day. And it was a great celebration. It was about harvest. It's, it's Israel's Thanksgiving, if you will. And if you've been at church at Pentecost Sunday very long at all, you've heard this message preached many times. Um, in fact, some of the, that have been in church for a long time might be um, nodding off to sleep right now because, yes, Pastor, I've heard this, and it is very 
you know, usual and regular. But friends, I, I contend today that we have not really experienced it fully. We haven't really fully experienced it at Abundant Life. And I want to point that out to us today because there's a lot that we're missing here. There's a lot that we're not grabbing onto. And for individual lives, i got to tell you, the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost will transform your thinking, it will transform your ways, it will transform your values, it will transform your wants and desires. He will take and he will make you a brand new person because of the power of the Holy Spirit. If you were in... If you were not in, raised in church at all, you have no connection with all of this, and you just read this, and you image this coming into your mind, you imagine what's going on in this upper room with 120 people, and they're all kind of worshiping, and it's very ruckus, and they're speaking in tongues, and, and there's the wind in the place, the sound of wind, there's these 12 in tongues, there's a fire resting on them, you're thinking, this sounds nuts, right? <laughs> this, is, this is craziness. I mean, when you read that, you go, well, yeah, that's crazy. Well, I concur without... The addition of faith in Christ, I would say that I, I would believe that that would be crazy, but no crazier than some nut job laying on his back on a skateboard going down a mountain at 70 miles an hour. If your church experience has been from an uber-conservative, maybe very slanted, hyper-Calvinistic perspective, then you believe that baptism of the Holy Spirit is just one of many things that God did just kind of to jumpstart the church and and. Only us confused fanatics and uneducated ones uh, believe in God's healing, spiritual gifts, uh, you know, and things like that. And if your experience was from most mainline evangelical churches, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit and conviction in your life, he's more of just your everyday helper rather than uh, a companion as God. So if we're raised in a more radical Pentecostal church, um, you had, you know, some very manifestation experiences, you've seen people speak in tongues, you, you've uh, seen people respond to the Holy Spirit, maybe they shook or they laid on the ground, we've seen all of those things in our church, and, or, or maybe you've seen Jericho marches back in the day, you know, the women with the bun in the hair and the penny loafers and the men's shoes, and there was a whole kind of, a whole Pentecostal, then that moves into the word charismatic era, where, you know, people were in churches and they had all these kind of experiences, and, and the experiences aren't bad, but for all, those of us who, who desire for God to move and to that we would invest in and, and all of us experience his presence, there was too much focus on people getting the experiences rather than pointing it back to Jesus, I think. And the concern that, that, that most churches have today, I think, is that they've squelched, we've squelched the presence of the Holy Spirit and moving in people's lives because we're afraid to see what, how people might respond. Well, I've responded dramatically when the Holy Spirit has touched me in prayer. I, I've cried. I, I've shook, I've laid on my face before God. I've seen people around these altars when we prayed for them uh, burst out and speaking in tongues or laughing or, or God released them in some way. And, and what happens sometimes is because we look at that, and people begin to go, oh, what's happening here? It's, it's, and we'll draw attention to that too much maybe than pointing it back to Jesus. The purpose of God's presence and the power of the Holy Spirit poured out of Pentecost wasn't something that just stopped either. It was something for us to experience him, us experience Him in His presence today. But there's, there's powerfully three types of baptism revealed on Pentecost. Did you know this? I, I think that there's a couple other things to be considered, other baptisms, if you will. The baptism of John, he baptized to repentance, remember? And then Jesus said they, He would baptize them with fire. Well, both of those things are for another subject, another topic we'll talk about another day, because right here in our text, 
he talks about baptism in the Holy Spirit, and but there's three baptisms that are really revealed. So after we have this experience in the Lord, and, and in Acts chapter 2, I should say, um, there's not, Peter stands up and he gives his sermon. It's not really a sermon, it's more of a message, right? I mean, a sermon is kind of some of the thoughts I have prepared here for us today to share with you along with its, uh, you know, illustrations and everything else. And, and the hope is that I will never just preach a sermon, but it would be a message. But Peter stands up, and he, this is the first of his habits. He is always standing up, saying something. And he stands up, and what does he do? He, he preaches this message. And the most basic ingredient is that Jesus is Messiah. You killed him. I mean, that must have made him feel great, right? You killed Jesus, and he rose from the grave, and this is the that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. He's saying that not only did Jesus come and fulfilled the Passover, but he poured out his spirit and fulfilled Joel chapter 2. That he has come. Now, keeping this in mind, many of them were very religious, and they're stuck in their dry religiosity. So put yourself in that setting for a little bit, if you will. And they're without any understanding of God's grace. And to them, they were okay because they did good things. Most people think that's how you get to heaven, is to be good enough, do good enough, and be a nice person. But that's totally contrary to the gospel. The gospel says, I am worthless, I am worth nothing, I can do nothing good of myself. I am not good enough to save myself, no matter how good I am. I am just like anybody else in this world that's very sinful, far from God. I am just like any other far satanist pagan that might be out there that's far from god addicted and and whatever i'm just like that person but the foot at the foot of the cross the ground is level and there is no one better than anyone else and that we all have this so that they when when the grace of god comes at pentecost this grace begins to change the culture immediately you imagine, what, think about the things that changed immediately after Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, you know, the 1,500-year tradition of keeping the Sabbath stopped. The sacrificing of animals and shedding of blood stopped after Jesus rose. The, the gospel made a radical transformation in a culture that had thousands of years of uh, Adamic history, Abrahamic history, and religiosity. And there's still those that are stuck in that religiosity, and they're around. And, and to them, they don't have any understanding of this new grace. To them, they were okay because they did all the good stuff. They went to church on the Sabbath. They obeyed the law. They, they were obedient. They were do-gooders. They, they were like Corona obedient, right? <laughs> Wearing their mask. Anyway, that was free. Um, in, in fact, Peter adds to them, as I said earlier, he tells them that they killed Jesus. The very thing that they thought they were good enough in, that I'm not like those religious hypocrites, or, or they thought that they were better than these people, or they thought they were better than that, or, or that he, he basically tells them it's because you think you're good enough that's your sin. And it is the message of grace that comes out of Pentecost. So many people today believe that that's salvation as well, right? I'm a good person, so uh, I believe in the afterlife, I believe in heaven, so I'm going to go to heaven just because I'm good. And I'll go, to, I'll go to heaven, but no one is ever good enough to get to heaven, right? It's only through the grace of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came, to remove our ability to be good enough. He came because we were not good enough. So anyway, when they hear this, they're like, What, Peter? I'm not saved because I'm, not, I'm a good person? Wait a minute. So Peter says in verse 38 of Acts 2, he says, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He tells them right now. He says, you're not good enough. Repent. So notice here, he gives them three things. Salvation, baptism, baptism in water, and baptism in the Holy Spirit. And this is an important message because of these three areas. God makes a distinction between the Spirit's baptism and salvation and the baptism in the Holy Spirit given after we're saved. In fact, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is in every gospel. All four gospels uh, record the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, also baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, salvation is significant. The Holy Spirit's the presence of God. And I want to talk about these three baptisms and give us some clarity because they were present on this day and they, they are present today. Number one, there's a first, there's three baptisms. Number one, the first one is the Holy Spirit baptizes us in Jesus. Look at the 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The way Paul puts this, by one spirit we were baptized into one body, the body being the body of Christ or the church, God's people. So the Holy Spirit compels us to Christ. If, we've, if you ever come to Christ, if you've ever been convicted of sin, you understand the work of the Holy Spirit, right? He draws you back to what is true. The Holy Spirit baptizes, uh, baptizes us into Jesus. We are saved because of our belief in Jesus. The second baptism is one that I hope all of you have experienced, and that's a baptism in water. The, bap the disciples baptize us in water. So uh, the Spirit baptizes us into Jesus. Disciples baptized in water. Now, Matthew 20, 18, the Great Commission, right? That's what we've nicknamed it, called it, but it is. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus takes on this idea of baptism. The word baptize means to immerse in water. It doesn't mean to sprinkle. Uh, one must be cognizant of their life transformation choice. I understand that I am choosing and believing in Jesus. And we make that profession of faith to others and we're baptized, we're immersed in the water. And the only thing different from before you go in the water and from when you come out of the water is that you are wet. You go in dry, but you come out wet. But it's an illustration, right? We understand the illustration. Water baptism is very important. And I want to dwell on this just for a moment because we make a statement that we belong to Jesus and we'll follow him. And it shows that we are unashamed of Jesus when we get water baptized. And I, I think for, for too many and too long, the meaning of water baptism really has been minimized. And I, I want to bring it to the forefront. And I did this last year on Pentecost Sunday when we were unable to meet together. And I said this thing about baptism in water, and I want to say it again. When I, oppo when I opposed, huh, that would be bad. When I proposed, <laughs> there we go, that brings clarity, right? When I proposed to Pam, I wanted to spend my life with her. Now, she knows I am far from perfect. She is perfect, but nonetheless. Baptism is no less of an important thing and is very significant to be accepted by and to accept Jesus. And let me explain how important water baptism is because it's very similar in its connection and commitment as a wedding ceremony. Because when we get saved, we get gloriously transformed. When I fell in love with my wife and we had a mutual love and respect for one another, 
we carry that through to a ceremony that Jesus, that God puts together, uh, the Jewish tradition as well amplifies this, that we are now one flesh. And that ceremony represented our bond. It, 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 it pulled together two people, two families and friends and, and people into a, a common gathering together for celebration of our union. The same is true in water baptism. When we are united with Christ, we want to show, just like Paul says, we're buried with him in his, and I'll get to that scripture in a moment, we're buried with him like he went down into the grave, he rose from the grave, just like Christ. We go into the water and we come out of the water. Now, water baptism is so important because I think many are missing out on a large portion of their calling and ministry in life because they have pushed this aside. They said this is not important to do. Water baptism is very important, friends. We follow the example of the Lord. It is a tangible outward action. It's a symbol of a covenant relationship that God has with us. This is so important. And let me explain this even further. Paul compares, now get this, water baptism to the act of blood circumcision that God established as the seal and sign of a covenant he made with Abraham and his descendants. Read with me this scripture in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 14. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting of the body, uh, cutting of the body of the flesh by circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism down in which we were made raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with the legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Wow, right? What a revelation. The imagery, I don't want to be too gross about it, but it's the cutting of the foreskin and literally in the water with you that that is a blood covenant. Now, we think in different terms than they thought back then because we don't identify with that as much as they did back then. Circumcision identified them as God's people. Circumcision set them apart from all other nations. Uh, it was something that only they did, that God established with them. So, friends, when God set this up, he's saying, hey, this is important. And, and God right here in his word compares that very blood act to water baptism. Don't be controlled by fear. The devil always misleads people about water baptism. And he will always use fear. Fear about how you'll look, fear about that you don't want to do it in front of people, fear that it's not from God. That fear is not from God. It's from the enemy. And if you are a believer, get water baptized. See me. Let's talk about it. So, one, we're baptized by the Holy Spirit into Jesus. We're baptized by disciples, by men and women, into water. And we're baptized... Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. So to clarify and to understand water bap understand baptism is to have a, a grasp on these three baptisms. And I want to say them again because 
we often don't understand this because I've heard many people say, well, when I got saved, I got the Holy Spirit. Although not untrue, the act of salvation that the Spirit baptized you into Jesus is distinctly different in Scripture from the act of Jesus baptizing us in the Holy Spirit. So we all come to Christ because the Holy Spirit pulls on our heartstrings, right? He, he shows us our sin and reveals to the blackness and ugliness of our heart, the, the filth that lives there. And so we're drawn to Jesus. And many are, are, are I gloriously say that God bless you for, for choosing Christ. God will bless you. Amen? The second part, getting baptized in water, does something more for your faith. It encourages you. If you feel stymied in your faith and you've not been water baptized, get water baptized. I guarantee it will change you. God's Word certifies it. I don't have to back it up any other way. God does. And the third one, very significant, many have missed. Many have missed. And I, I preach to all of us today, those online, those of us in the sanctuary today, that being baptized in the Holy Spirit by Jesus is a necessary component if we want to experience a full life and have God change our life and our attitudes and aptitudes, our desires. He will do all of that. Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, who is he? Jesus. He is coming. He will baptize you. So Jesus is the baptizer. The Holy Spirit was the first one to baptize you into, into Jesus. Man baptized you in water, and then, the Holy, then Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. It's very important to understand, I think, the difference between the first baptism and the third. And it carefully says that he will baptize us in the Spirit. And the first one specifically about coming into salvation. And I think that's important. The third one is very important because we're baptized by Jesus with or into the Holy Spirit same in both. Now, now here's kind of sometimes what, what gets me in two ways, and I'm sure you've experienced this conundrum as well. These two are not the same. They are not the same. They are very different grammatically and theologically. He will, Jesus, will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And for what reason? So why are we baptized in the Holy Spirit? Just to speak in tongues or to have some physical manifestation experience? Or I say Possibly, but no, that's not it. To give us power. To give us power. I've heard many say over the years that we've heard it said the Holy Spirit gives us power to witness. Well, that's true, but first of all, Jesus says he will give you power, and then you will go, right? So how many want power? We want power from God. Now, what kind of power? Now, the Bible tells us the kind of power and the kind of things that we as Christ followers will do when we are filled with the Spirit to give us power. And he, he says that this God will give this to us. The separation is important because the Spirit-filled person, there is power in life for certain things. And they live differently. They act differently. Those that have experienced baptism in the Holy Spirit have, have a greater desire for God. They have a, a, a greater interest in the things of God. And I'll tell you why. And, and I, I want to clarify this. I don't hold back on any of this. I believe every single word. That God gives us, number one, the power of supernatural wisdom. John 14, 26 says, The Counselor the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, John 14, 26, and will remind you of everything I have commanded you. Look at 
the work of God here. He is our teacher and instructor to give us wisdom and understanding beyond what we know. How many have ever needed that? Like, yeah, like I need that all the time. Like, God, I am far from understanding everything. I sit here, right here, put a 5,000 puzzle uh, jigsaw puzzle in front of me, and I probably will stare at it for the longest time trying to figure it out. I, God, I am just not that smart. I'm not with it. Now, all of you, I'm sure, are very educated and much smarter than I am. I appreciate my education. I, I'm grateful for all the things that I've, I have done and to do to this day, right? We never stop learning. We should never, as Christians, we should always be reading. This is my opinion. We should always be reading. Anyway, but when God says, I will teach you all things, or remind you of everything, wow, that, that's a powerful thing. That's a, that's a Holy Spirit implanted thing that goes beyond what I've learned. And look at 1 Corinthians 2.10. It says, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches just a few things that are not very important. That's not what the Bible says, right? It says the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. This is, the, this is the work of finding out into the mysterious. This is the, this is the work of God giving us the, the understanding beyond what we can know. The number of times that, that Pam has been convicted about something the Holy Spirit gave to her that was beyond her comprehension of studying. And me the same, and I'm sure you've experienced it as well if you're walking in the Holy Spirit, which we're going to get to. Friends, if we're facing our need for wisdom, we need to seek God and to be in the presence of God. The power of supernatural encouragement is another thing that God gives. How many need to be encouraged? Look at the power of God in the work that he gives here. Ephesians 3.16, Paul writes it this way. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Powerful. That God would encourage your inner being. How many have ever been in the mully grubs, down in the dumps, depressed, not feeling so hot? I mean, I have, I have done that all the time. And you know what I have often found? When I put off times of worshiping God, I'll just stay in that. You know, but every time I'll sit down or I'll sit down with my guitar and I'll start playing, I'll start singing, I'll worship me. And after a while, after just a little bit sometimes or instantly or sometimes for a long time, I'll sense the presence of God. And he will encourage me. And you say, Pastor, isn't the Holy Spirit already in? Yes. I'm going to get to some more of that in just a minute. There's the manifest presence of God and the cultivated presence of God. I'll, well, let's get there. This should be the mantra, though, of every believer, that, that you are encouraged and you have confidence in life and in spite of the fact that the world is falling apart all around you. Because it does, right? We face tough stuff. This transforms a, into a witness even without... Christ, to, to see life, we're amazed at the, the, the confidence and peace that, that we have during tough times with, with him, I should say. And this is the advantage of a believer who is in the presence of God. Thirdly, the power of contentment. This is a big one. I mean, there's always a bigger, badder, more powerful motorcycle. There's always something, right? You just never quite have it. Uh, the meaning of the celebration of the Feast of Pentecost is really a perfect fit with this word contentment. Because they sat there and they ate till they were filled. They ate till they were full. The Israelites did. This was a custom. 
This is like Thanksgiving dinner, right? The goodness of the Holy Spirit's work on the day of Pentecost with the disciples in the upper room, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Because they were filled, all kinds of things happened. You know what it's like to be filled. You know what it's like to overflow a cup with water, a, a fullness, a real contentment. It's all there. They ate, they celebrated, and I like to think the reason that, that we sing songs, that their celebrations uh, was an attitude, a, gr a gratitude party. You know, as we lift up the Lord. And in this day, you know, and age, previous generation, I can't get no satisfaction. But with the Christian in the life, God gives contentment. You know, quietness with contentment is great gain. I am so grateful for God's contentment. This nation, all the things that we try to do to get contentment, meditation, and sports fanaticism, and sex, and drugs, alcohol, pot shops, spelunking, Disneyland, whatever, clubbing. Whatever we do to try to give our life purpose, some of, some of those things, like a spelunking isn't bad, but I'm just saying, you know, that isn't the only thing, right? Our purpose, our contentment is in the Lord. He brings joy to all the stuff. We, I'm grateful for the stuff he gives us, right? I'm glad I have a toaster. Praise God, because I love my onion bagel with a lot of cream cheese on it. Mm. I'm grateful that God gave me that toaster and the bagels, and that somebody else made them, right? We, we have, we're grateful for our, our cars or our, our, if you have a boat, you, you're grateful for the house that you have in or, or the things that you have that you enjoy. I'm, I, God, if he is predominant and first and it has priority of our life, we get joy out of the stuff he gives. We enjoy those things. I just a, a, Not too long ago, it was for my birthday or something, Carl gave me a set of those headphones, those bed, Bose headphones. That I've used on, them on every plane trip, I've got, and they are awesome. It closes out all the sound around you. Good stuff. But God gives contentment, the Bible says, encouragement and wisdom. Those things are all available via the power of God in our lives. And Jesus, when he told the disciples that they would do even greater things than he, what was he doing? He was laying hands on sick and they were recovering. God provides power for all of us as his kids to live with these things and is contentment. The goodness is the message of good news because when we have these things evident in our life, you know what it does? It improves you as a discipler. The power of the Holy Spirit's work, in order for them to be disciple makers, he has to first make us completely devoted followers of Jesus. And when God begins to work those things in us, and he begins to make you content, provide for your needs, and, and give you satisfaction and wisdom beyond what you know, and you begin to be creative and industrious in life, when God works by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life that way, people are drawn to becoming a disciple. Face it, disciples are made by people like you and me. And the question that we've asked before, if, if you, someone were to follow you around all the time, what kind of disciple would you produce? What kind of Christ follower would you produce? Many people are far from God and, and believe they're good enough to be saved, but when a, a spirit-filled person comes in, this baptizing spirit, um, we have an impact on their world. And people have a, a misplaced idea of religion over the message of grace, that we come to God because He's all we, can ha He's all we have. 
We have no other options, and 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 that is so good. And and it's not, Jesus is not like other religions that need to be charmed by my good behavior or or to to be given a, a greater penance to, so that somehow I can enter a higher level of the afterlife. This is this is this is the God of gods, the King of kings. And when we can, when we become containers of His Holy Spirit, we become uh, something that that changes the world. We, 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 in a, maybe in our culture today, we become a, a kind of a religious people rather than a spirit-filled one. Friends, hear this. Do we have a Jesus that, that we will praise but not pray to during the week? Do we, do we have a Jesus that we can be around but not with? Do we treat Jesus like somebody that makes me feel good just when I come to church, but I have no interest in him the rest of the week? wouldn't be very married very long if that was the case in your home. This is what you and I are called to be, friends. We are called to be ambassadors of God's grace. The greatest display of the Holy Spirit outpouring on the day of Pentecost was that grace was given to those people. All they had ever known was their religious tradition. All they had ever known was being good enough and trying to measure up and trying to be well-to-do enough and, and all of those things. In fact, in the culture back then, the wealthier you were meant that God's blessing was on you more. And so they had pious, this pious attitude toward those who had nothing. And grace changed everything. All of a sudden, at the foot of the cross, the ground became level. There was no one vying for being first. We don't live on the faith of those who've gone before us. We have a previous generation maybe that experienced revival in, in our church or our parents or our pastors that we followed in churches before. And, and you know what? i got to say this. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And we are intended to be on the front row experiencing God and living with Him ourselves. We are responsible for this message of grace. If we're going to have an awakening in our lives personally, which is the only place I know how to begin, before it goes into Lakewood or anywhere else, we have to confront the reasons that we're not being that witness that, that God wants us to be and experiencing His power. And i got to tell you that grace is the message Grace is the message that you carry with you for your coworker that is that is going through divorce or your your son or daughter that's running hard from God. Grace is the 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 thing that removes the bitterness from lives. It's available to the drug addicted, the sex addicted, the depression addicted, to the religious addicted. Grace is the thing that changes everything. Grace is the mantra of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the message the church should be producing, and it should be the message of our lives. Grace always says, no matter what, no matter where you come from, the ground around the cross is level. Everything I've said this morning is not new. And it's probably, I'm sure it's not new for many of you who've been in church for any length of time, but here's where today's message begins and ends. I, I hope to have a very frank talk with all of us here at Abundant Life as your pastor, as this Pentecost Sunday is here. Today's message begins and ends with this. Wisdom, encouragement, contentment, and grace are only experienced when we are in the presence of God. Now, in the past, I've known what that looked like, and I was able to maybe share it with you in some way or form. But i got to tell you, friends, that without a cooperative praying church, there is no cooperation. Nothing matters more than being in the presence of God. 
hear me with this. Now some may teach doctrine like being in the presence of God from the book of Acts because it's just narrative history, but I think we can get doctrine from the book of Acts. I do. Some don't. The problem is that Jesus tells us to be filled with the Spirit. John writes powerfully under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The writer of Hebrews says that the Spirit of God affirms the covenant that God would have with us in our actual bodies. Paul writes that the experience of being in the presence of God will reveal the deep things of God. And if you ever needed solutions or answers from everything from your body to your finances, it's not found in any other thing by the greatest quest or this or that. It's found, friends, first of all, by believers, first and foremost, by being in the presence of God. And, and I want to be the best model for you with that in every way, and I'm, I'm not always. All these experiences are being only come by being in God's presence. And here's the tough part. The part that it has a little preachiness for the soul today. When Jesus spoke to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, when he said in verse 20, I stand at the door and knock, I propose this question to you. Who was Jesus talking to? see, oftentimes we believe that he was talking to unbelievers. And we get the picture, the painting, right? I'm sure you've seen it, where Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. And it's a representation of evangelism. But friends, Jesus is not, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, he is not talking, he is not talking to unbelievers. So then that transposes more questions. If he is talking to the church and he's talking to you and I, and you and I have come to believe in Jesus and maybe we're baptized and filled with his Holy Spirit, why would he tell the church that he is still knocking on the door? What is the plead from God's heart that is so grandiose and, and so powerful that he would stand outside the door of the church, of the people in the church, of your heart and my heart, and he would say, I stand at the door and knock. Why would God say that to a believing people? Jesus coming to tell us something, something that we're not letting him in for? Why would Jesus say to Larry, why would he say to the church in abundant life that he is standing at the door and knocking? He tells us in verse 17 that we don't realize we're poor. And you know, every time I've heard this poor portion of scripture preached, it's always been from a fiery, red-faced preacher spitting, baptizing people over the front row with his spittle, right? Uh, he lays it, and I've, I've said it that way myself. But you know, when I read this in verse 17, I, I kind of get Jesus saying it this way that you don't realize that you're poor. You don't realize that you're naked. You don't realize that you're alone. You don't even know that you are. Come, open the door so that I can help you see that you are these things and you need me. 
Why does he do that? Because anyone standing outside the door is not inside. The person outside is not in the presence of the person inside. Friend, I want to make you a statement. And, and you can take this or leave it. You can take it with your theology and ball it up and throw it in the trash if you want. But I guarantee you this one thing I know beyond the shadow of doubt. You can be filled and baptized in the Holy Spirit and not be in the presence of God. Pastor, how can you say such a thing? And I don't mean that he's not with you and in you and that his presence is all around us all the time. I'm talking about the deliberate act of someone opening the door and saying, Jesus, I want to be with you. Now in the past, I've experienced revival or awakenings here and there. and At times, I've caught some of these themes. But friends, there's no more things to do at church. There's nothing more we can do. There's no more classes we can do. There's no great outreach that we can have. There's no super awesome functions that we can do until we get this part right, until everyone, including our leaders and those at work, in the church of abundant life, come into the presence of God corporately. Pastor, I don't need to do that. I can pray and see God at home. Friends, until the church experiences the presence of God, Jesus stands at the door and knocks on the door of everyone. The personal awakening has to come first. He is knocking until we let him in. The, the power of the Holy Spirit poured on the church, the purpose of it was not just for our happiness or just to get a giggle every now and then, although not unimportant. But the purpose of it was for us to have fellowship with God. Because in the presence of God, all fear goes away, all worry, all doubt, all pain. Jesus takes that away. He ministers in those moments. The day of Pentecost came when 120 people were gathered together, seeking God together, worshiping God together, asking Him to be in their, to be in their presence together, to, to, to reach out to Him together. And this is the ongoing dwelling presence of God. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come on people like Saul, for example. Saul was far from God. He was running from God. He was wanting to kill David, God's appointed next king, right? And as he's coming to approach him, the Holy Spirit comes on him. The manifested presence of God, in that moment, he prophesies. The Holy Spirit comes on people in the Old Testament, but then the Bible says the Holy Spirit departs. The difference between the Old Testament and when Jesus ascended and sent the Holy Spirit to us is that now under this new covenant, the Holy Spirit comes and remains. So there's something to be said about God's manifest presence. We experience it even in this room when we're worshiping God together. When we seek God together, we experience the sense of God's presence in this place. We, we feel him echoing his word. Even this morning, as I say some of the words from, from his word today, I'm convicted because the Holy Spirit is speaking that into my heart. And I'm sure you're experiencing it as well in different ways and in different times in the manifest presence of God. But I tell you what, when we spend cultivated daily times waiting on God. It has to be reinvented. The term, the term prayer life is gone out of the church. When we cultivate that consistent, that's called the cultivated presence of God. That Then when you go through life's mundane, God carries you through. And here's the rub. God's presence is available right now in every way. There is a reason he says he stands out the door, outside the door and knock on the believer's heart and life. The reason is this. He wants 
for us to be available to his presence. That little skit was so apropos, Jesse, that you picked. I asked Jesse to pick the video because I just, friendly, frankly, needed a transition time this morning to be able to take my guitar off and take my earbuds out to be able to walk up here and begin preaching. But I can't think of a better video you could have picked than the one about the girl on wanting to give Jesus the stool. How we do this and how we fight and how we battle so often. God wants for us to give up and say, Lord, I surrender. I want all of you. And I got to tell you, friends, this is not just when, when, we leave, when you leave someone outside, you know they're outside. When you leave someone out, you, you know they're not coming in. When you ignore the doorbell, when you ignore them, we're often good at this today, unless we ordered food, and then we're quick to get up and open the door, right? Grubhub's there. We got to go get it. We spent twice as much money as we should have on a, a, a Diet Coke from McDonald's. It's insane. But this is way different than that, right? And so the invitation today and the, the point of practice to put in for this week is this. Will you push in and press into the presence of God? Will you take time just to sit in a chair and say, God, speak to my life today and wait for God to answer? There's such a theme of waiting on God in Scripture, and, and we're so fast with everything. We've got remote controls and drive-up windows. What more do we need? And God is saying, wait, if you want to just, if you really want me to touch and you want to experience my presence, you know, all throughout Scripture, they that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Waiting is the theme in Psalm. Early in the morning will I come, earnestly will I seek him and wait on the Lord. Will I wait on the presence of the Lord? It's a rhetorical question that he asks. For certainly God will show up in my day of distress and give me answers in the time of trouble. Will I wait on him? Waiting on God. God, have your way in us. Have your way in me. I hope that this Pentecost Sunday, you are able to realize this with me. Say, Pastor, I'm going to press in. I'm going to wait on God. And the next time we're able to have prayer gatherings, where we're not right now, all this craziness, we will again uh, next month. Don't miss it. Um, but the times that we gather, make sure that you're here, seeking God, calling on Him. He is good. Amen? Amen. Stay with me, would you? Those at home, I hope and pray that you're blessed today and that God encourages you through this and challenges you as he's challenged all of us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning and thank you for this day. And God, right now in this place is the place that I ask you to come and dwell and rest in your presence. And the place where everybody is, God, watching online or wherever they are, that you would be there with them. And today, God, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us here in your power and in your way and in your time. I want to ask in this room here, in response and invitation, if you have maybe pushed aside God's presence for different things, if you haven't allowed God to satisfy your longing, and, and you are not interested or haven't been involved with his presence, but you want to be. I want to pray for you today and that you would say, Pastor, I agree with you. I need to be in the presence of God. And maybe there's a renewed interest this morning. You say, I desire being with Jesus. I desire his touch and his blessing on my life and his favor in every way. 